0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for
1: all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs, sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy, And I'm Delana Trocoborty.
0: And when we left off with the Bourbon series last, Louis Thirteenth and his chief advisor, Cardinal Richie Liu, who's also known as the Red Eminence, had passed away just within a few months of each other in 1642 and 1643, making Louis Fourteenth king. And much like Richie Liu, Louis Fourteenth, who's also known as the Sun King or the Grand Monarch, you could probably do an entire series just about him his wars, his expansion of French territory, and, of course, his mistresses. But the truth is, since he's one of France's most famous monarchs, you've probably come across at least some of that info before. I mean, it probably is not something that you missed in history class.
2: Yeah, probably not. But as we mentioned in the last episode, you can't do a series on the Bourbon family and leave out Louis Fourteenth because – I mean, he essentially defines the family. So in this episode, we're going to focus on his court at Versailles during the very height of his reign and how it reflects some of his contributions to French society. But we're also going to focus on a dark scandal, which I guess sort of shows the underside of his um, reign of power and a mystery of sorts called the Affair of the Poisons. I don't if that doesn't make you intrigued. I don't know what will. (laughs) And this little mystery completely shocked and disturbed the French court at this time, and um, also marked a turning point for the king. So...
0: We but can. before we get there <laughs> as usual we're going to start at the beginning and just give a little bit of background on Louis the 14th even though you may know some of this we just want to kind of set the scene for this affair of poison so that you know maybe what led up to it and what was going on at the time. So just a little recap from last episode Louis the 14th was born September 5th 1638 and at the time he was called God-given. It was a really big deal at the time because it came after a pretty big dry spell for his mother, who was Anne of Austria, and Louis the Thirteenth. They hadn't had any children up to that point. So people considered Louis XIV a visible divinity almost. They thought that his uh, his birth was almost a miracle. And since he was only five when his father died, though, Anne ruled as regent alongside Prime Minister Cardinal Jules Mazarin, who she had handpicked to advise her.
2: So it's interesting. It's kind of the same setup that Louis Thirteenth had When he became king, coming to the throne as a young boy with his mother serving as regent with an advisor who had a whole lot of power. The big difference here, though, is that unlike Richelieu, Mazarin wasn't falling in and out of favor with the queen. Um, He did have a lot of enemies, though, and namely those enemies were the French nobles. We know the nobles, they're always stirring up trouble. They really are. And a lot of this trouble started under Richelieu, whose policies of the monarchy reduced the influence of the nobility. You know, I mean he was all about the absolute power of the king. So Exactly. So some of the nobility and the judicial bodies, such as the parliaments, were feeling a little bit disenfranchised, like they had sort of lost out and they're ready to get a little something back.
0: So they decided to do something about it and they staged a series of civil wars known as the Fronde against the crown. And though the Fronde was ultimately unsuccessful, Louis had to grow up in the midst of all this. He grew up in the midst of nobles rebelling against him and this atmosphere definitely made an impression on him. And by most accounts, he was neglected also as a child, brought up mostly by servants. So, it, it definitely colored his vision, I think, of the future and how he wanted to rule.
2: He wanted to be secure and powerful in his future, and that's definitely going to come into play. But Mazarin continued to rule even after Louis Fourteenth came of age. But after Mazarin died in 1661, Louis shocked the country by telling everybody, all of his ministers, everyone, that he intended to rule for himself. Uh this is unheard of. The king is supposed to maybe dabble in ruling or have certain strong suits, if it's like economic stuff, military stuff, but then spend a lot of his time enjoying being king. To decide to take it all on himself sounded ridiculous.
0: Right. But from his perspective, Louis Fourteenth saw himself as God's representative here on Earth. and. You know, maybe because he had heard similar things to that from a young age, but
2: he basically thought that this gave him the right to rule as a dictator, essentially. An absolute monarch. And from that point on, he really set out to control every aspect of what was going on in France, the military decisions, the economy, the cultural life. And he does, you know, obviously he has some advisors. He has a few ministers around him to help him out, but he really works hard. He, he works at it like a full-time job, spending eight hours a day just devoting himself to all the little details of what's going on in the kingdom. Right, and it was
0: really every little detail. So, as we mentioned, Louis Fourteenth was known for a lot of things, including going to war a lot, especially with the Netherlands, and... In an attempt to expand his territories. On his deathbed, in fact, he was remembered as saying, I have loved war too much. But he's also credited with bringing a contemporary conception of luxury, probably a lot of how we think of France, especially Paris today, I think, to the country. I saw it described in one source as actually elevating lifestyle to fine art, which I thought was a nice way to put it. So he brought some fanciness into it.
2: Yeah, there's there's a store down the road on Peachtree that sells like lifestyle goods. And I just, I'm somebody who has no conception of what that even means. (laughs) I think Louis would know, though. Um, He's interesting, though, you know, this, this, you mentioned he, he thought he could rule like a dictator. That extended to all sorts of things, not just control of the country, but he imposed his artistic taste on all of France. He nurtured talents of the writer Molière and made him write all this stuff that was supporting the monarchy and supporting the king. Um, he supported the painter Rigaud. And in doing this, a lot of people say that Louis helped French culture attain the same level of respect that the Italians had. It it, it elevated the country. True, and it seems that he wasn't a, just a dilettante
0: in doing all this either. He seems to have actually had a true love for the arts. Fun fact, he himself was an accomplished ballet dancer and even performed at court in costume and everything, which love that. I mean, just imagining this king who participates in wars and fights and on the
2: side, he's also a very elegant artist. I've actually seen a picture of him as a teenager dressed in his Sun King costume, which is like a gold flaming costume with points radiating out from it. I wonder if it was ballet costume. Could
0: have been. So, again, he had control over every little detail. He decides not only when they go to war and economic things, but he decides what's beautiful and what etiquette should be, and he imposes these tastes on everybody. And he also uses it in a way to get what he wants politically.
2: Yeah, so we're going to go back to those nobles who rose up when he was a young boy against the monarchy. And Louis didn't forget these guys, and he didn't forget the circumstances that created a problem like that. So he drew the noblemen into court and he tried to keep them there and he tried to keep them occupied with frivolous things like gambling. And he really took note, careful note, of who was there and who wasn't. So if you were usually there and then one day you were missing, Louis demanded to know why you had been gone. if you were in and out all the time, he needed a good excuse from you. And if you weren't around at all, you were in trouble. That was really, (laughs) really bad. There was probably no good excuse for being constantly absent from court.
0: Yeah, and if you were one of those people who was never there, you would have a really hard time getting what you wanted, because that's kind of how the king decided things. He would if you approached him, for example, and you said, I need more land or something, but if you were one of those people who weren't around a lot, he was known to say things like, he is a man I never see. And that would sort of be the end of it. You wouldn't get what you wanted because you hadn't been
2: in the favor of the king. Might as well just stay at your castle at that point. Um, so being at court and sticking to the king's rules of etiquette became really essential for nobles who wanted to get anywhere in life. You you couldn't essentially be your own king anymore with your own vassals and your castle and your land and your army. You had to be at court watching Louis eat. <laughs> Right. So it just
0: basically made nobles less of a presence in politics. All of this becomes even more complicated when he moves the court from Paris to Versailles. In Versailles, it was easier for him to keep track of people there, and it made the court more isolated, too.
2: Yeah, so he started going to Versailles originally to carry out a love affair with his mistress, Mademoiselle de la Valliere. And, uh, I mean, he was quite the womanizer. I think that's one thing. We Even all though know. he was already married. He was married um, to the daughter of the king of Spain. Um, but at that point, when he was visiting Versailles, the structure was basically a hunting lodge. That sounds more rustic than it is. It's still a fabulous country house, but still, it's not like the Versailles you might go visit today. And so in the 1660s, Louis starts transforming it into this enormous palace and architectural wonder. And you have to think, you know, part of it is to bring the nobles there, but also so he has his own stronghold. He's not in danger like he was as a child in Paris.
0: Yeah, he feels a bit uncomfortable there. So Versailles is sort of an escape for him. But he's often criticized for this because Versailles was so extravagant, the palace at Versailles, that is, and it cost so incredibly much. Some say that it practically ruined the nation. It was somewhere around the price of a modern airport, so just imagine that for a second. But actually nobody knows for sure how much it cost because the king is rumored to have destroyed the bill after he saw how much it was and realized that, oh my
2: gosh, I spent way too much on this thing. (laughs) I feel like that's something Blondie would do. (laughs) Um, but even even if, so, you think if it costs as much as a modern airport, all of the nobles who were staying there would be in pretty nice quarters, at least. That wasn't the case. I mean, it was the lap of luxury for the royal family. But the other guests, and sometimes there were as many as 1,000 people there, uh, were put into these really small cramped rooms that were too hot or too cold for the season. I mean, this is not the servants we're talking about, these are people who are used to living in palaces themselves.
0: Yeah, and it almost seems, I'm sure it wasn't that bad, but it almost seems like a slum, having to live right on top of each other. Remember your place. Definitely. So this is just all to set up the scene for the king at the height of his rule. By the 1670s, around 1680 or so, he's been doing well in wars, he's adored by his court, and he's just generally living large out in Versailles. Um, But we're going to backtrack just a little bit to explain sort of his situation with his mistresses and everything that's going on. So back in 1667, he'd taken on a new mistress, the Marquise de Montespan, and they'd been together for years, and they even had seven kids together, one of whom died. So the remaining six kids, they are legitimized. And she had been a lady-in-waiting to the queen, and she was married to the Marquis de Montespan, with whom she had two kids also. Her husband didn't really like what was going on between her and the king, and apparently expressed that some because he was exiled to Guyon in 1668 and legally separated from her shortly after that. The king and the Marquise de Montespan go on to be together for about 13 years, but it really doesn't last when Montespan is implicated in a scandal, one of the most notorious criminal cases of the 17th century, in fact, the affair of the poisons.
2: So this whole scandalous episode actually starts back in 1673 when the Comte de Soissons, who's the husband of Olympe Mancini, uh, who's the former favorite of Louis Fourteenth, and if we're really gonna keep track of everything, the niece of Cardinal Mazarin. Um, so when the Comte de Soissons dies in these strange circumstances, circumstances that suggested poisoning, people start talking, you know, it's, it's interesting news. So right around the same time as this Comte de Soissons story, another big case was going down in Paris. The Marquise de Branvillet, who was an aristocrat, had been found to have poisoned her father and her brothers and to have made attempts on other members of her family, including her husband. Essentially, it seemed like she was trying to kill every male family member and get their money. Hmm. Um, And there was a lover who left behind evidence incriminating both of them. And Bramvillier had also knocked off a few inmates in the charity hospital, testing out her poisons on them. You know, posing as this do-gooder, noble woman walking through the halls of the charity hospital. Yeah, really seeing if her her stuff was potent enough to kill her own family. Uh, So, those are two big stories going. You can imagine today they'd be on the cover of all the tabloids. This is what people are obsessed with at the time.
0: And just so you understand the situation a little better, there are a couple things that are going on around this time also that, that sort of set up the scene a little bit. Poisons, for one, are more readily available, especially arsenic. And these poisons are also very hard to detect because there's no really there's no pathology around at the time. There's no CSI. There's no bones, and so nobody really. Um, it, it's very easy to both use it as a way to kill somebody and also just use it as a possible accusation against somebody. For example, somebody dies, and you could just say, oh, I think they were poisoned, because there's no really way to prove whether or not they were. Um, So there's a lot of this going on. It's an upgrade from the tutor pushing them down the stairs method. Also, the other thing going on is that these nobles we mentioned, whose fates were so closely tied to the king's favor, they started turning to fortune tellers, magicians, renegade priests, conjurers, basically the occult in general, to try to improve their fortunes, and also thwart their enemies at court. And this was probably especially true for women at the time, just because for a lot of them, this was the only way for them to be free and wealthy, in becoming a widow.
2: Yeah, so getting rid of your husband or other male family members. So Bromvillier is caught in 1676, and she's tried and executed. But before she dies, she's said to have said something kind of interesting and kind of scary to a lot of people in France. She said, quote, half the nobility are at it as well. If I wanted to speak out, I could destroy them. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, exactly. So suddenly people are suspicious. Who is she talking about? Who else is at it? Right. So a couple of. Sort of shady
0: situations happen in the meantime. I think that after that, there's an attempt on the king and nothing really comes of it. But then this situation, the affair of the poisons, erupts into a full-blown scandal in 1679 when the police apprehend a couple of working-class women who claim to have been selling poisons to duchesses, marquises, princes, and lords. And they immediately begin to implicate other people in their class, including a fortune teller known as La LaVosan. She was a fortune teller to some of the most illustrious names in France. So this was a problem.
2: Yeah, and these three ladies start mentioning some other very important names. This This story keeps spreading. So
0: basically, Louis... And his people decide they need to do something about it. So with Louis' approval, one of his ministers sets up a secret investigative tribunal known as the Commission of the Arsenal. And the goal there is to look into and try some of the cases involving the the more important names involved. And this was both to preserve discretion in these situations and also to prevent the guilty from escaping justice because they were so close to the king. So essentially, you don't want this to get out to just everybody and their brother in Paris because it's just going to cause a lot of commotion. and Terribly embarrassing. Right. So they want to keep it on the down low. They set up this tribunal and start trying people.
2: But they also don't want somebody to get away with poisoning their whole family just because they happen to be the king's friend. True, But then in September 1679, the Marquise de Montespan's name starts being thrown around in connection with this whole affair. So... This has gotten very serious all of a sudden. Very close to the Uh, king, too. Yeah, the woman who is just about the closest person in the world to the king is linked to this shady underworld of poisons and uh, alchemy and all sorts of things. Yeah, and her accusations go pretty deep. She's accused of four things. She's accused
0: of buying love potions from La Voisson to retain her hold over the king. She's also accused of participating in black masses, which were basically blasphemous, burlesque-type masses performed by satanic cults. And in those black masses, she was accused of having a priest cut the throats of children over her, basically using her naked belly as an altar. And the purpose was the same, to retain the king's favor. The third accusation was that she had attempted to kill one of her rivals using a pair of poisoned gloves. Some reports also reported that it was with poisoned milk that she attempted to poison her rival. And the fourth accusation was that she had attempted to kill the king himself. So that was kind of the most serious one.
2: God, I still can't get over the black mass of this one. Yeah, that's pretty that's gross. pretty serious and gross. But no, it's suspected that the accusers cooked up a lot of this because they knew that Louis wouldn't let anything happen to the mother of his kids, this woman who is so publicly linked to him. And... I mean, they might have been right to a certain extent. He he didn't want her name to get out so much with, say, a public execution of some of these serving class women who were involved. So I guess they played their cards. They definitely did. And and I think you were right. I think
0: they were absolutely correct in what they did. Louis had everything covered up. He had notes from interrogations that were kept on separate sheets instead of a ledger. He specifically ordered for that to be that way. and. Of course, most people suspect, and I think this actually happened or is supposed to happen, that he destroyed the sheets later on to destroy the evidence. And on October 1st, 1680, following the execution of a Madame Philostra, Louis decided to suspend sessions of the commission of the Arsenal. And many believe this is because Philostra made damaging allegations against Montespan.
2: So yeah, it wasn't just um, La Poisson talking about her anymore. It was a noble woman and things were getting out of Louis's control. Right. Um, By then, the commission of the Arsenal had already judged 104 cases and 34 of the accused were executed. Two were condemned in absentia and four were sent to the galleys. Thirty-four sentences involved banishment or financial amends and 30 were acquitted. So pretty serious results from this um, tribunal. But it takes a couple years to wind
0: down. It takes a while to finish up all the executions and the sentencing of people who were guilty and send them to their various prisons and places that they need to go. But by 1682, there was also a sort of positive result of this affair of the poisons. It led to the first legal restrictions on the sale of poisons in France. So something good got to come out of it anyway.
2: Yeah, it couldn't go poison the people in the poor hospital anymore quite so easily. Uh, it's still a mystery how guilty the Marquise de Montespan really was. I mean, most people now think that she probably didn't have any designs on killing the king. That sounds extremely reactionary. I mean, she would have nothing to gain from killing the king. In fact, she would probably lose most of what she had, as mistresses often did. Uh, but she probably did drink love potions and participate in some of these black masses. A uh, lot of people think that she did. A lot of people think, yeah. Um, but either way, her relationship with the king definitely ended shortly after this whole thing blew up. I guess perhaps he couldn't trust her anymore, or he lost interest after finding out about all of the blood and the altars. Well, I think he just needed to change
0: his image a little bit. He was getting (laughs) a bad reputation, and he was a devout Catholic and really needed to kind of rein it back in.
2: Yeah, and his reputation definitely did change. Uh, In fact, the way court ran started to change a lot, too. Gambling and entertainment uh, still took place, but they took place underneath this veneer of propriety. Um, It's a little hypocritical, but Louis himself was getting older, too, and, yeah, just trying to change his image and reform publicly, at least.
0: Yeah, as I've seen it described, he actually renounces pleasure, Uh, but kind of funny if you think of it at the same time he took up a new mistress so i don't know how that works but
2: katie and i talked about her in an earlier episode um madame de maintenon and it's interesting they're not quite sure if it if he took up a mistress or if they were secretly married before anything started happening but um anyways they they lived together until um until his death
0: Yep, he dies in 1715 at the age of 77. And he actually lives so long, he's been on the throne for so long that he's outlived his son and his grandson. Um, So leaving the question of who will become heir. And that takes us to a good stopping place, I think, for our next installment, which may or may not have something to do with Louis the Fifteenth, his right. heir. Keep going on these numbers. So just keep trucking along. I mean, there's so much you can do. We could probably turn this into a year-long series. Don't worry, we probably won't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there just seems to be a lot of good ideas.
2: I like talking about the on. royals in the winter for some reason. It just feels right, knowing they're probably all cold in Versailles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> shivering in their rooms without heat. We're cold in All Atlanta. 1,000 of them. Yeah, we're Snowed cold. Snowed in. Snowed in Atlanta. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess that about wraps it up for the Sun King. Um, we've recommended how royalty works so many times now, so I don't know. You can just... Just how, fr- how the French Revolution works? Oh, yeah. That's good. Okay. Okay. So I guess that about wraps it up for the Sun King and the Affair of the Poisons. Um, but you can always suggest more Louis topics or more bourbon topics to us on Twitter at Missed History, on Facebook, or by emailing us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. And if you want to jump ahead see what happens a little bit, we do have an article called How the French Revolution Worked. You can find it by searching for French Revolution on our homepage at www. Housestuffworks.com.
1: for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com to learn more about the podcast click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage the HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived download it today on iTunes